Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Romans chapter 12. We're going to look at one verse in Romans chapter 12 there, verse 1, a very well-known verse. And then I'm going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 40. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word together. We are looking at the sermon title today is Our Worship. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. These are the words of God. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 40. But all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. Let's pray. Our Father and Almighty God, in you are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Open our eyes that we may see the wonders of your word, and give us grace that we may clearly understand and freely choose the way of your wisdom. Through Christ our Lord we pray, and amen. Amen. You can be seated. Last week we covered the global conquest of Christ's kingdom which is accomplished through the vehicle of God's people. The mission is what we looked at. The mission is the infiltration of the nations with the gospel message. That's the mission, to infiltrate all of the nations of the world, all people groups, all nation states, all peoples everywhere with the message of the gospel. That is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to take it there. We are to take men alive. We are to destroy their idols and their high places. I'm afraid D.C. is going to have to go. And while doing that, we're supposed to win the battle for their hearts and minds. So along the way, that's ultimately what we're after. As we obey the Great Commission, more and more people are brought into the covenant, faithfully executing what God commands of them as individuals, as families, as nations, and so forth. And as a result of that, as a result of our Great Commission efforts, as a result of them being brought into the covenant, through baptism, the transformative power of the gospel immediately takes root and it seeps into every area of life. So that is the basic concept. The gospel seed is planted in the heart and then it moves out and it goes into every, every area of life. So hearts, minds, hands, and cultures. Starts with the heart, it goes into the mind, it shapes the hands and what we do with our work and vocation, and of course it works itself out into culture. So our program, the Christian program, consists of winning hearts to the gospel. And we know that the Spirit is the one ultimately at work in changing hearts. But baptizing them in the name of, the, of Christ, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, putting Christ's authority on them by the Spirit, we baptize them into the covenant, they come into the visible church, and then we teach them the obedience of faith. So that's the mission as revealed in Scripture. Now having said that, The topic of worship naturally follows this. Indeed, we might say that it presupposes it. John Piper has rather famously said, I believe this is a paraphrase, I couldn't track down the quote, but um, he said this, missions exist because worship does not. What Piper was getting at is this, the chief end of man, as we know from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, right? That is the goal. 
for every man, woman, and child on this earth to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Romans 11.36 clearly states, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Picking up on this, the Apostle Paul says elsewhere, Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So whatever you do to the glory of God, if that is uh, pulling weeds, do it to the glory of God. If that is uh, feeding your, your cats, we seem to be doing a lot of that lately, um, you do that to the glory of God. So whatever you're doing, you do it for something other than yourself, right? We, we exist for another, and that is for God. Now, worship is the extolling, praising, and giving of glory to God, which means that when nations and people groups are not giving proper worship to God, missions exist as a result. So we, we, we see uh, all of these um, pride gatherings popping up, and you look at that, and you have a, a bunch of emotions, um, irritation, anger, and then you sort of stop and say, well, this is really depraved, this is really bad, I feel for them in a sense, they're sheep without a shepherd. Um, so you go through a range of emotions, but what you realize, though, is at a deeper root, they have not gathered to extol the living God. <laughs> they have gathered to extol themselves. And so immediately you're confronted with not just a missionary problem, you have a missionary problem because there's a worship problem. And that is the idea that Piper's getting on. I think he's right. So we, go, we must go, therefore, as missionaries to teach them to worship God. Now... We need to remember that worship is much broader than simply singing songs to God, albeit singing is part of our worship. Uh, just keep in mind that the mission isn't just to get people to sing psalms who normally wouldn't do so otherwise. Rather, the mission is the obedience of faith, a total life lived in total submission to Christ in total worship. So all of life is, we can say, liturgical all of life is liturgical, and it's supposed to be lived in service to the king. And I'll explain some of that momentarily. What I want to do this week is demonstrate a biblical theology of worship, a broader perspective on worship, and that is from Genesis to Revelation. We're going to first start by defining it. We're going to show the Bible's authority over it, and in a couple of weeks, we're going to come back to this and drill down on our expression of worship here at Cross and Crown specifically. Now, I, this, this happens from time to time, but I originally had planned to do one week on worship, but the more and more I dug in this week, the more I realized that we need more time, and so we're going to break it up into two different messages. So today will be a broader over, overview, and then in two weeks we'll look more closely at the reasons why we do what we do and why it's important for us to think intelligently and biblically about worship as it pertains to a local ecclesia, ecclesia like us gathering. So let's look at our text again, Romans 12.1. Paul says, Therefore I exhort you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. A couple of observations here. First, Notice that mercies is plural. Notice that mercies is plural. In Christ, there are many things we've been given. Election, justification, sanctification, redemption, 
Salvation. What have we been given in Christ? Deliverance from sin. Uh, deliverance from the condemnation of the law. Uh, we've been given a new creation. We're made to be new creatures. He gave us uh, vocation, calling, uh, adoption. We've been adopted as sons and daughters. He's given us the promise of heaven and eternal life. He's given us the promise of resurrection life and so on. When you stop and survey for a moment, what else would you add to that list? What has God given us? He's given us everything. He's given us a whole lot. His mercies are indeed plural. There's a lot of them. God's mercies, his compassions are new every morning, Lamentations 3.23 says. Our lives can only be acceptable to God because he has been merciful. You, your, your life cannot be acceptable to God on your own volition and your own willpower. It is only acceptable because Christ has been merciful. He has been merciful to us. Calvin says it this way, But this exhortation teaches us that until men really apprehend how much they owe to the mercy of God, they will never with the right feeling worship him, nor be effectually stimulated to fear and obey him. It's very simple. You'll, you'll, your heart will never be in worship if you do not realize the debt that you owe because of the mercy of God. Mercies multiplied are graces received, and graces received means worship due his name. Second, based upon the multiplicity of mercy, our bodies must be presented or offered as a living sacrifice. So because of those mercies that he has poured out on us, has showered on us, we as a result have to respond a certain way. We are to present ourselves. When you would, I'm going to get into this, but when you would present an animal, you're presenting yourself in the Old Testament system. So, having been consecrated to the Lord by the mercy of God, you've been set apart by God. His grace was given to you. You're consecrated. You are set apart. And it follows then that we need to live our lives for a newfound reason, the worship and adoration of God. I, I think of that often in evangelism encounters. And, and it's easy to forget this, but you have to remember, they're not living their life for the worship and glory of God. And that's what we want them to do. And so instead of trying to, again, win the argument, which, you know, I enjoy winning those arguments, but <laughs> we want their heart, though. We want them to worship God, to bow down to God, and that's the issue. Their heart is in the wrong place. It needs to be in the right place. It needs to be given over to Christ in worship. St. Augustine, he said this about the concept of sacrifice. The true sacrifice, then, is every act done in order that we might cling to God in holy fellowship. That is, every act which is referred to the final good in which we can be truly blessed. He continues, Thus a person who is consecrated in the name of God and is vowed to God insofar as he dies to the world so that he may live to God is himself a sacrifice. Augustine writing in the 4th, 5th century. Now normally sacrifices involved the shedding of animal blood as a substitute. So if you were a, uh, a Jewish man or woman and you were going to the temple, say when it was Solomon's reign and the temple was finished, and you were going to the temple, um, the worshiper would lay, and by the way, this also happened at the tabernacle before the temple, but the worshiper, you would lay your hands on the head of the animal, you would confess to the Lord your sin, 
You would confess that you deserve to be punished to death like this animal. You would, you would come to the temple with the animal, put your hand there, and confess, Lord God, I've sinned against you. I deserve death. I deserve nothing of your goodness. So take this substitute as a payment and spare me so that I might live unto your glory. So that's what would happen in the temple. And as a result, the animal was sacrificed instead of the worshiper. And I'm going to go into more detail in a passage in Leviticus in a couple of weeks. For, but for now, just know generally that was when you understood sacrifice. If you're receiving this letter from Paul and you, you hear the word sacrifice, you're immediately going there. The, the images are meant to invoke some sort of experience in the tabernacle. So here, Paul switches the paradigm, though. He likens us to a sacrifice. We are the sacrifice, but this acceptable sacrifice is still alive. So you present your bodies alive, living every day, laying on the altar and being consumed by God in his glory. You die to yourself, you live unto him. That's why you're a sacrifice. So we live by faith and we offer ourselves to him by faith, which is to say the entirety of our lives is offered to God. The entirety of our lives is offered to God. And we do not dare like Cain to offer our work, but not ourselves. We do not dare like Cain to offer our work unto God, but not ourselves. Thirdly, <clears throat> as we live our lives as a sacrifice, offering the whole person to God, Paul says here we're set apart as holy. And when you're set apart as holy, you are pleasing to God. So thus you please God. And Paul says that this is your spiritual service of worship. So mercy extended to us means that we are now the Lord's. We're enlisted in the service of God. We serve God. And having been consecrated to him, we must be holy and pleasing to God. That's why we confess our sins together every week. And that should also flow into your day to day, confessing your sins every day. Now, a couple of things are important. The word logikos can be translated as spiritual or even rational. When he says that this is your spiritual service of worship, he's kind of getting at sort of this idea that it's your logical service of worship. And we don't mean to separate the mind and the heart, but what God requires is the whole of man, the entirety of your being, to intelligently meditate and reflect upon this newfound relationship we have in Christ. You are to think about Christ daily. You are to think about his sacrifice in your place. And you're to live for him daily. That's why Jesus says to take up your cross daily. You are that sacrifice to God every single day. Now our minds are to be renewed, he says in the next verse. But the center of our being, which is our hearts, is to be spiritually engaged in thoughtful and meditative worship of God. That's what he's getting at. They're, they're, you're, you're using your heart, which gives rise to your mind. You're using the entirety of your being. It's spiritual. It's logical. It's rational. It's all of those things we use to describe what it means to give of ourselves and all of ourselves. The next phrase, service of worship, is actually one Greek word. It's the word is latreia or latria. This is where we get the word liturgy from. Um, liturgia in Latin 
comes from latreia in Greek, but liturgy is the English word we get. And that means the work of the people. Liturgy is the work of the people. It is divine service. You could read that and translate it just as legitimately as being divine service. The liturgy is the performing of rites. It's the offering up a service to God. Now, first century Jews would see this word, latreia, and immediately have images of the temple service and the tabernacle service, and they would immediately think of the order of sacrifices which was prescribed in the law of Moses. They would immediately go back to all of the sacrifice, the, the, the first eight, I think it's eight chapters of Leviticus, you have just a bunch of different offerings and what they are and what they mean. So if you're a first century Jew, okay, my life, the entirety of my life is a living sacrifice for liturgical purposes. That's how you would read this text, for divine service. You would read it and think, oh yeah, that's right, tabernacle, temple, the image of the sacrifices, the water, the, the, the basin, the, the bronze altar, which would consume the sacrifice. You would think of all of the things in the tabernacle and temple, and you would realize that all of that points us to Christ, and all of that gives us a pattern for understanding how to live our lives in a liturgical manner. So to serve the Lord, you think about this, like we call this our, our service. We, many people call it a church service or a service to God, a divine Eastern Orthodox would call it a divine liturgy or a divine service. But to serve the Lord, like what we do here, is to minister to the Lord, to engage God in a manner solely based on His prescribed terms. God wants us to come to Him, but he, we come to Him on His terms and not ours. All right? So that's why, you know, in our, in our gathering, we don't have, like, you know, flaming pants up here. Okay? And we don't um, sacrifice goats out back afterwards or during. <laughs> you know, they, they, we're supposed to approach God in a way that he tells us to approach him and not just flippantly in our own prescribed terms. So what Paul means here is that the totality of our lives are, in fact, liturgical. Everything we do is liturgical. And parents, this is um, something we'll get into next week, but it, the... The issue of, of child rearing and raising our children, we want them to understand liturgy. So when you, know, you have a child who sins, you, you want them to understand their sin, and you want them to confess their sin, and you want them to bow before God and worship. And so you, everything, our relationships, and how we view one another, and how we serve one another, and all of these things are liturgical issues. Now this same word is used in Acts 13, verse 2. Barnabas and Saul and others... They were ministering to the Lord and fasting. They were doing liturgy to the Lord and fasting. So no doubt they were gathered for liturgy and worship. They were together as an ecclesia. They were praying. They were fasting. And as a result, the Spirit responded to them by sending out Saul and Barnabas as missionaries. So they were sent out based on a worship gathering. Now flip to 1 Corinthians 14.40. The Apostle Paul tells them, but all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. He's speaking of church, the church gathering, what we do as an ecclesia. Addressing the problem of chaos in the Corinthian church, Paul says that what they do in their worship gatherings, their liturgy, their worship, their service, must be done properly and orderly. Now the word translated here as properly is actually where we get the English word schematics. 
So hence the title to this series. I didn't just make that up. Ecclesiastical schematics. Things must be done properly, Paul says. There's a schematic to it. Now the phrase, an orderly manner, is actually one Greek word, taxis. And quite literally, Paul tells them that their worship and their liturgy should be arranged in sequence. It should be put in a state of good order. There should be procedures, not extemporaneous chaos. So the fact that we put this the way we do each week is very much in line with what the historic church has always done. And it's also in line with what the Apostle Paul says here to do. You look up those words and you can find very clearly there was chaos in Corinth. That would be an interesting sermon title for that series, Chaos in Corinth. Um, but there was a lot of things going on and they were doing things out of order. There was, there was mayhem, essentially, in their church. So Paul says, no, 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 no. You've got to do things in order. You can't just, it's not just... Everybody stand up and say whatever they want, whenever they want. There needs to be order. There's a process here. And he says as much here in our text as well. Now, we're going to deal again more with that in the second message. But I want to put it on your radar ahead of time, this passage, because we'll come back to it. So, how shall we then live? Broadly speaking, worship is an awful response. Awful in the traditional meaning of that word. It's an awful response to the character and actions of God. When you think about and contemplate the character, nature, and actions of God, you should be filled with awe. You should be struck, awestruck. When, when man encounters God, he must have a reverential response to God's magnificence and glory. Think about Moses only being able to see part of God. Think about uh, Isaiah approaching Christ in his pre-incarnate uh, state, sitting in the temple and the train of his robe filling the temple, his authority extending into the world, you think about what response you would have if you saw today the living God. Now, I think if the unbeliever saw the glory of God, he would die immediately. But we're covered and clothed with the righteousness of Christ. So I think we would fall down and perhaps be blinded and perhaps be brought to a deeper level of repentance like nothing we've ever experienced, but I'm not sure we would, we would die on the spot, though we would be a deserving. But what would be your response? How did the shepherds respond when they saw the angels? You know, how, how do people respond? And the angels always end up saying, well, fear not. That, that tells me there's some fear to be had. <laughs> Now, the Hebrew word for glory means weight, kavod. It means weight. God is weighty. God essentially carries eternal significance and importance. He's the weightiest being in the entire universe. Now, there are several different words in Hebrew and Greek to express our worship towards God. And to worship God, one might bring forward an offering to God, a kara. Another concept revolves around actually bowing down in the presence of God. So you might worship God by bringing an offering. You might bow down in the presence of God to your knees. You display outwardly what one has going on inwardly. Hava. The verb rum means to lift up or exalt, to praise God in lifting up his name. Some words like halal refer to basic celebration of God, and all of you know this word, hallelujah, 
Hallelujah means praise Yahweh. So to worship God, one might sing, you might zamar, you might sing to God, or you might serve him, abad, you might serve God. So all of these concepts are used all over the, the Old Testament for different ways of worshiping God. In the New Testament, we have the Greek word proskuneo, it means to bow down, to literally to fall to your knees, to prostrate yourself before another. That would be an act of worship, to bow down. Um, and that's partly why you're free to bow down in our confession of sin on, to your knees and actually bend the knee to him. Um, praising God is dexazo, which we praise him, we invoke blessings. Uh, you've heard of eulogy, correct? Uh, eulogeo is a Greek word. We talk about invoking blessing. We, we, we love God's name. We praise God, God's name, and so we invoke a blessing on him. That is a eulogy. So when you give a eulogy at a funeral, you're essentially invoking God to bless those who have departed. That's where that tradition comes from. And of course, the word latreia mentioned earlier, that word is used five times in the New Testament. In Hebrews 9.1, which was read earlier, it speaks of the first covenant, the old covenant, having requirements and ordinances for divine worship. He says that even in the first covenant, there were ordinances, implying that even in the new, there were requirements, though they take on a different form and shape, what we'll cover next time. Hebrews 9.6 mentions the word again, referring to the tabernacle period where the priests performed the liturgy. And the point I'm making here is that the concept of worship in the Old Testament and in the New uses various words to describe various aspects and postures of worship. There's a lot going on when we think about the concept of worship, physically bowing down, invoking the blessings of God. That's why we pray in a prayer of invocation. We invoke his name. We, we invite him to be present with us uh, with fear and trembling. <laughs> Um, we sing to him. We pray. All of those are different words and different forms used to help us understand worship, our, our posture. So how we respond looks like a wide variety of things. Now, a quick survey of worship in the Bible is in order. We're going to do Genesis to Revelation, and it will be quick, so hang tight. Remember that God created Adam and Eve, and there was a three-level structure to the world. You had the garden, you had the land of Eden, and the world garden, land, world. Adam and Eve lived in the land of Eden, but they were to enter the sanctuary garden of Eden to worship, serve, and fellowship with God. Where were they on the Sabbath day? In the garden. And what was God doing? Coming for a walk, coming for fellowship. And of course, Adam was hiding, and we all know that story. But their job, Adam and Eve's job, was to cultivate the world outside of Eden, to live in Eden, to cultivate the garden, to worship God in that way, and they were to do so in liturgical harmony with God. They were to visit Yahweh every Sabbath in the garden. They were to go there to enjoy his fellowship and take what they learned there and apply it in the land and apply it in the rest of the world. Now, the whole of creation, when you read Genesis 1, and two, for that matter, but especially Genesis 1, we find that the whole of creation was a temple sanctuary. The entire world was to be a temple sanctuary for God. Ultimately, it was to become a new Jerusalem over time, which indeed is what is happening now. 
However, when Adam and Eve sinned, we know that they were exiled. Uh, They were sent out of the garden and thus away from the presence of God. And remember, they were not allowed to go into the garden again. They were not allowed to enter back in. So space was interrupted. But guess what? So was time. Space was interrupted, but so was time. Their timekeeping ability became fractured. They had violated the eternal Sabbath. They had broken that covenant of works, that covenant of creation, and so space and time was interrupted. And only Christ comes to restore our clocks, restore our watches, so that we can, in liturgical worship, know not just who and where we serve, but when we serve, which is the Lord's day. Now Cain and Abel, they brought sacrifices. These were tribute offerings to the gate of the garden to be consumed by the fire of God underneath the sword that was guarding the entrance. Now Cain's offering failed because Cain did not offer himself. There was no blood atonement. You remember he gave the produce. Abel, however, offered himself. He gave a blood offering. Now we all know what happened next. In Genesis, we also find that worship develops, altars are erected. One of them was by Noah, and you'll recall Abraham went throughout the promised land that he was, it was not his yet, but the land of Canaan. And what does Abraham do? He builds these altars to the Lord as well, these places of worship to God. Speaking of Abraham, you'll remember that when he took his son Isaac to the mountain to sacrifice him, which God told him to do, Abraham, he told his entourage to wait here. We are going up onto the mountain to, quote, worship God. To offer sacrifice to God. Fast forward in history, we have Israel in Egypt. And then we have Israel rescued out of Egypt by Moses. At this point, there wasn't a specific location for worship. But as the last part of Exodus explains, God gave blueprints. He gave schematics for the development of the tabernacle. And uh, that is an interesting read if you've never spent time and the end of that digging in. But there's all this instructions about the poles and the hooks and the curtains, the screens, the Ark of the Covenant, the utensils that were used, the bronze altar, the showbread, the lamp stand. Uh, You had all the gold, which was to be all over the place. Um, You have all these incredible descriptions. And it was very detailed, and it even included descriptions about what the priests wore while doing the liturgy in the tabernacle, with certain color schemes and the ephod that they wore around their neck, symbolizing the 12 stones were the 12 tribes of Israel. Amazing detail. And we look at that and think, well, that was just weird. Why would God do that? Does he really care that much? Yes, he cares that much. So during that time of Israelite history, worship centered on the portable tabernacle where the presence of God, which was a cloud by day and a fire by night, took up residence. And you remember the tent of meeting was outside the camp and Moses would go to speak to the Lord as with a friend, the Bible says. As history progresses, the tabernacle eventually made it to the land of promise. One time it found itself taken captive by the Philistines Another time it was kept at Shiloh. Uzzah touched the ark one time. You remember he died immediately, 2 Samuel 6. Once David becomes king after Saul, David vowed to build a permanent house for God in Jerusalem. But we know instead of that, God said he would build David's house, his kingly dynasty, and David's son Solomon would be the one who would build the temple. 
Now, during this time, music became increasingly important in Israel, especially thanks to David's many songs. David wrote many of the Psalms, and so musical instrumentation, the Levites would play oftentimes, they would have festivals, they would play music, they would gather for that, and they would sing. Thus, the temple was made by Solomon, it was dedicated to God, and Yahweh dwelt there among his covenant people. And this temple was a tremendous edifice of worldwide significance. The whole world knew about what was happening there. It was one of the great wonders of that time. Now the form of worship varied. I already mentioned this, but you had temple rituals which took place, sacrifices that took place daily, sacrifices that took place on special occasions like Passover, the Day of Atonement. You had feasts, you had festivals, you had all these parties going on, people fellowshipping and eating together. It's a glorious time. You had singing and chanting. You especially heard a lot of people singing and chanting the book of Psalms, especially during celebrations of, uh, and worship gatherings. Many Jews, Jews would sing these songs of ascent on their way up to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, and they would be walking along the road and just enjoying the great time. It was a party. It was an entourage going to celebrate God. Worship also involved confession of sin. It, it involved lamentation, crying out to God in agony, asking God to judge his enemies. Worship involved praise. It involved thanksgiving. It involved adoration. And the Psalms express all of these elements. Sometimes dancing was involved. I will not do that here this morning. Dancing was involved as demonstrated by David. And preaching happened as well as prayer. Sometimes there were appointed times for holy convocations, like Leviticus 23, verses 2 and 3 describe. These would have been early forms of synagogue-type worship. Once the temple was destroyed by Babylon, things weren't the same. The glory of Yahweh left the temple, departed the temple. The place was devastated and ruined, and worship took place in exile in the form of prayer, song, teaching. Oftentimes, Jews would cry by the rivers of Babylon, as one of the psalmists says. They would gather in homes, and they would have to retool and rethink how they approached God now that the temple was gone. You remember Ezra and Nehemiah returned to the land to, of Israel. They, their job was to rebuild the walls, to establish liturgy once again, but again, things weren't entirely the same. Synagogues became the central place of gathering, the place where the liturgy took place. Once we get to the New Testament, we see Jesus and Paul and others in the synagogues. Um, they were even in the temple. Peter, and they went into the temple to, to preach, and that created problems. But once the temple was destroyed, and again in AD 70, they still went and found synagogues and places, and there was teaching, there was praying, there was singing, there was participating in the liturgy there. The early Christians, you might recall, were viewed as a sect of Judaism because those synagogues became places of worship. However, eventually, things went sideways. Eventually, the Christians broke off. They kept the model. They kept the liturgy. They kept the purposes of those gatherings, but they retooled them for the greater mission of gospel ministry. Now, I want to wrap up part one of our, our worship series here by emphasizing that 
Worship encompasses the entirety of our lives, or at least it should. All of life is, is liturgical. All of life is liturgical. It's the work of the people. It's the work of the people of God, praying and singing and preaching and teaching and fellowshipping and evangelizing and so on. It's all of those things. And we go through seasons of change. We go through seasons of doubt. We go through all sorts of seasons. But at the end of the day, all of life, every season, is an opportunity for liturgy. It's an opportunity for you to sing for the joy of the Lord, to pray, to pour yourself out, to go to his word, to be taught the word of God, to evangelize, to go into the world with the gospel, to go to the hard places. All of life is liturgical. Liturgy in the home, in, in culture, etc. It's also part and parcel to our worship. See, when we obey Christ in every area of life, we are, according to Colossians 3.17, worshiping God. Paul says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. If you feel so led to fire your lawnmower up and go out into the yard, stop it, get on your hands and knees, and thank God that A, you have a lawnmower, but B, that you can cultivate the ground for his glory. You might get looked at by a passerby and think that's a strange man. Why is he worshiping the tractor? Bowing down like in such tomfoolery. Well, no. You can thank God. You have an opportunity to and never resist that opportunity. See, the vision from Genesis to Revelation is the heavenly vision of man's communion with God. That is why the Bible must inform our worship. The Bible is our authority for everything, including what we do, when we do it, where we do it, and why we do it, and even how we do it. And right now in heaven, singing is taking place. Do you understand that? Right now, at this very moment, singing is taking place in heaven. Much rejoicing is happening right now before the throne of God. Worship is taking place. And when God's people gather together, we learn from a couple of places in Scripture that we join in that heavenly praise. We too ascend to the heavenlies and we, we rejoice with them. We sing. We rejoice. We pray. See, worship is a window. It's a scope into the reality of cosmic worship. We can't always see what's really going on. Do you ever think about that? Like, what is happening right now in heaven? And it's okay to long to be there. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. It's, it's okay. But what is happening in heaven right now? Oh, the music, the singing, the rejoicing. Reflect on that. And reflect on the fact that we, when we worship and we organize ourselves accordingly, we get to catch a glimpse of that. And what a sight it is to behold. And indeed, we live in a way, and the way we live is meant to teach the nations. See, we gather together to praise God because heaven does, and we want the world to do so as well. We confess our sins together, and we want the world to do so. We sing and we pray because the world needs to sing and pray. And we want Eden here on earth once again, and through the vehicle of the church, we can have it. Why? Because Hebrews 12 says this, But you have come to Mount Zion, into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the festal gathering and assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, 
the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. See, our worship is liturgical because liturgy is eschatological and missional. It transcends us in our time, and it serves something other than us. That is what worship is supposed to do. You, when we gather like this, you're supposed to, to worship God. You're not supposed to be thinking about all the things you have to do this week. You're not supposed to carry all your burdens in here and, and leave with them. We're, we're supposed to be here for the Lord, right? And that's the perspective we need to have because we want the world to be with the Lord in the same way. So Christ has entered in, the veil has been torn, the screen has been lifted, and we now have access to the heavenly places. You have access to it every single day. And there isn't a separation between heaven and earth anymore because Christ has come. The priests went in day after day after day. The wall of separation was there. They weren't allowed to drink the wine. There were rules in place. How do you approach God? Jesus dies. The temple is torn asunder. We get to just go in with wine in our hand, laughing and joyously singing to the Lord. We get to go in, and we get to go in every single day. Every time you pray, stop to thank God, to adore Him, to, to sing to Him. You are entering in. That separation is gone. And now we, and this is the missional part, we get to participate in the heavenization of the world. That is the goal, the heavenization of the world. We're supposed to heavenize the world, and our liturgy communicates through language and posture this very process. So be ready to worship God. Be ready to worship God. Be in communion with God Monday through Saturday so that our corporate worship, which is tied to this great history we just briefly sketched, so that our worship can be pure and holy and sincere. The, the real estate of the human heart only has enough space for one Lord, one throne. And friends, if it isn't Jesus, we do not cease to have worship. Rather, we worship the wrong God. We were made to worship. We were made to give ourselves in worship. And whatever it is that occupy, occupies first place in your heart, that is the object of your worship. Make no mistake. And that is where you put your time, your money, your energy into it. Whatever occupies that space. And I'm here to declare to you that it must be Christ. It must be Christ. Only the triune God is worthy of our worship because only the triune God possesses the eternal glory that surpasses all other glories. Let's pray. Father, I ask and pray that you would fill our hearts with joy today. With a joy that is able to withstand the onslaught of the enemy. A joy that is able to withstand anything that may set us back from true and pure worship. I pray that you would cultivate by your spirit hearts that are on fire for your glory. Lord, even if it makes us look foolish, we'll be fools for Christ. Even if the world looks at us in condescension, we will know that you are the one who came low to bring us high. And we ask that you would increase, that we would de decrease, that we would be able to see your glory, a glimpse of your glory, as we reflect upon the work of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us today to serve you to live liturgical lives, to give you the glory and the praise each and every day. 
We pray this and ask this in the name of Christ, our Lord. Amen.